Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polat. This is the seventh episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. Thank you very much for being here. There are now three times as many of you as there were last time. So our little podcast is growing. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for listening. And let's just get right into it. So on today's episode, we've got a couple of different things to talk about. First of all, I want to get back a little bit into tech. We haven't talked tech in a while because I've been traveling so much over the last few months. But one question that I have keep getting asked, and I've been asked over and over a lot more lately, it seems like. It seems like people are camera shopping, and I think I know why I'm getting this question. Which camera do I use, and do I still travel with one particular camera? And I think I know why a lot of you are asking me that question. The second thing I want to talk about is Istanbul's bloody head cult. You heard that right. That's what we're going to be talking about. Then I want to go over just a little bit about one travel truth, one travel rule that I've noticed, uh, put it into a mathematical formula recently. And then the last thing, uh, talking about travel regrets. So I've got two different stories from two different people about travel regrets, and I've traveled enough to talk about travel regrets myself. So that will be what we'll wrap up with. Uh, A couple of things before we get started, just a couple of videos that have dropped since the last time a podcast has dropped is, first of all, if you've been wondering about the Sufi Opium Festival, that video is out. If you want to check that out, you can go to my YouTube channel. You can check out the Sufi Opium Festival in Lahore, Pakistan, which I attended. I talked about a couple episodes ago. I actually recorded the podcast episode right after I went to this opium festival. But finally, the video is out. So if you want to check that out, it's definitely up on YouTube. Um, Also, a couple of other food videos from Lahore. And of course, we've got the Best City to Visit Travel Tournament. Now, the Best City to Visit Travel Tournament is a contest I run every year on my site. I let all of you pick 64 different cities. And every week, round-robin style, tournament style, I match those cities up and you vote until there's only one city left. And those votes take place every week throughout the month of March. This year is shaping up to be one of the craziest years in a long time. First of all, it's the most diverse group I've seen in a long time. Just off the top of my head, it looks like we've got a lot more Asian countries. So it's very Asian heavy, a lot of African countries. So it's a very diverse uh, set of cities that we have here. And we've also got some old champions coming back up. I think uh, some people have missed the contest and some cities have missed the contest in the last few years. And a couple of the big hitters are back. So I am super excited. There's still a few slots left because what happens at this point usually in the nomination process when I'm taking all these cities is a lot of repeats. So you get a lot of people that just either don't see the list of cities that have already been picked, they don't read the instructions, whatever. So we've still got a couple of slots because of so many repeats. It's only one city per person, first come, first serve. So if you still haven't nominated a city, just go to foxnomad.com slash blog or tweet me if you want to know exactly where to leave your city and nominate a city. It's an easy way to enter to win $500. You literally just nominate your city and you don't have to do anything. you you don't there's no like nothing you have to sign up for there's no like hoops you have to jump through if i do a giveaway i want to make it as easy as possible for you and this is it now to win the best city to visit travel tournament take some effort but you don't need to put any in you can just throw your ring or your city into the ring and maybe your fellow readers will help you out and uh, you can take it from there so anyway a couple of slots left in the best city to visit travel tournament 2020 which kicks off next tuesday so that's a couple of things and uh let's get right into the first thing so i want to talk today about camera gear and i know exactly why like i said why i've been asked a lot about camera gear lately and that has a lot to do with the camera that i'm using now is half off it's basically half the price it was just two months ago nice timing panasonic right after christmas One of the things that I really look for in a camera is durability. And I look for a combination of quality, durability, and cost. Because 
a lot of the gear that I have. So I basically assume because I travel so much and I put so much travel physical burden on all of my electronics, I pretty much assume that they're just going to die on me on the road at any time. And I also assume that I might just lose them or leave them somewhere, which hasn't really happened. I mean, um, yet, so I'm knocking on wood, but it could happen or they could get stolen. When you're out and about different parts of the world, traveling, going through airport security, unpacking your bag, all kinds of stuff can happen to your gear. So I want stuff that I could replace easily on the road. And I just assume I basically add three times the amount of cost to anything I have as a replacement cost. Like, a, oh, oh, frick, you know, I, I my stuff is lost, stolen. I got to replace this quickly. And so I just add three times the cost. So if I pay $1,000 for something, I'm estimating that thing is going to maybe cost me $3,000 in a pinch. So that's how I add everything up. So the camera I use is the Panasonic Lumix G85. That's the main camera that I use. I use... I do use my iPhone a lot now as well, and I did until very recently carry a smaller pocket-sized Lumix, which was an excellent photo camera. It was a pretty terrible video camera, but I just recently stopped using it. So why am I telling you all this? Well, first of all, if you're not into cameras, maybe you can get some insight into my process as to why I pick certain gear. Um, if you are into cameras, this is gonna let's get into the weeds. First of all, I picked this camera. I got this camera in 2017. This was, I think, at the best time, really one of the best mirrorless cameras for around $1,200. It comes with a kit lens with 12 to 60 millimeter lens. That's uh, f3.5. So that's a pretty wide focal range. Obviously, I do a lot of YouTube, so I do a lot of shooting myself. So for me, wider angle is a lot is something that I use a lot more than a zoom lens. I don't really use a zoom lens too much. Even when I'm traveling, I don't really zoom into stuff a lot um, because mostly because I, you know, the camera is going to be handheld. And when you zoom in and you're hand holding your camera, there's going to be a lot of camera jitter and shake when you're zoomed in. So don't do a lot of anything other than like long pans and stuff like that. When I do a tech review, wide angle all the all the time, all day, and I really rely on a lens that has an f-stop that's low enough to give me some decent amount of shallow depth of field, which for those of you who don't know is basically like, let's say I have something in my hand and I'm focusing on that. I want the background to be blurred out to look all nice and professional and also to hide whatever's in the background so that you're focused on what's on the foreground. On a camera lens, the lower the f-stop, so f2.8, f2.5, 1.7, whatever, the smaller that number is, the wider the aperture is, which means the more light the camera can let in, but it also means the more shallow depth of field you get, which is that blurred background and the sharp, crisp foreground. So a lot of cameras that you have now, a lot of the new cameras uh, do that through software. So you'll take a selfie and you'll notice that you can blur the background and then you look all nice and sharp. Um, that's mostly done through through software changes. But with a camera lens, you're not going to rely on software to do that. It's, the software is not really great at doing that anyway. It does kind of blur the edges of the subject. So you want a lens, or at least I look for a lens that's got a low enough f-stop and a pretty wide range, but starting at the wider angle. Uh, also with this camera, it shoots in 4K, which is something that I don't need to do. I mean, there are many advantages to shooting in just HD, especially with this particular camera, but I do, I love resolution. So um, I shoot in 4K. Um, the problem with this G85 is that when you shoot in 4K, it crops in on the sensor, which means if I have a 12 millimeter lens and I switch into 4K video and I hit record, I'm going to crop down into what's about a 24 millimeter lens angle. What that means is when I shoot video, I get a crop, so uh, I could probably use a wider angle lens, but I don't have one now. Uh, that's probably something I'm looking into. But all this talk about the G85 comes up because now this camera is about $450 with this lens, with this kit, with everything, which is an amazing deal. I know it's three years after the camera originally came out, but this is still... This and the G7, which is the model before this, are still, I think, the two best mirrorless video cameras you can get that are $500. And ironically, the G85, which is newer, is 
cheaper than the G7 now. The G85 is weather sealed, which is really important for me. Again, I'm outdoors a lot, shooting and travel, like I'm traveling, shooting outdoors, which I'm shooting outdoors and traveling. So you've got rain, you've got dust is a huge issue in Kathmandu. If you could see my camera after a day out in Kathmandu, the amount of, I should have recorded that, the amount of dust that was just like wiping off. My laptop looked like it had been to like, you know, it looked like it had been sand surfing or something. I mean, my laptop had this this thick gray dust all over. All my stuff did. And the camera was was no different. So having something that's weather sealed that's going to protect the internal components from getting sand and dust is super important to me. It comes in very handy. So if you have a camera that's not weather sealed or, you know, a different style of camera, so... Uh, maybe a DSLR, which has a moving mirror inside. All those things mean that cameras might not be as durable to the elements. So that's another reason that I used the Panasonic Lumix G85. And now I realize it's starting to sound like a commercial. Um, but this is not a commercial. It's not sponsored by Panasonic. If Panasonic, if you want to sponsor the podcast, you are more than welcome. Big fan of your products. But I'm um, just talking about this camera and, and sort of my process as to why I use specific gear. Um, a couple of other things, reasons that I use this camera is it's got excellent battery life. So the battery life is very long. I can shoot, as, in terms of video, I can easily shoot an hour video on a single battery. I carry three different batteries. One is a Panasonic battery. Two, The two other batteries are off-brand batteries, and they last just about as long as the Panasonic battery Though I'm noticing now after a year of using them, they don't last quite as long. Um, so I'll probably have to replace those at some point. But three batteries is more than enough for a day of shooting for me. Um, it's very rare that I, I have to change out batteries when I'm actually shooting. Um, I was in Kathmandu a couple of weeks ago and I shot a really long vlog that you'll see uh, you'll see probably soon as I'm still sort of backed up and I'm still putting out Pakistan videos. But as I'm catching up, you'll see that video. That was pretty long. I had to change the battery out, but I probably recorded, you know, close to two hours. So um, that's something else that I look at in a camera is also the battery life. I want to make sure that I don't have to swap out batteries all the time. I don't want to carry extra batteries. I'm at basically the maximum amount of the maximum limit of what my backpack can carry. So I'm trying to kind of get rid of stuff. Um, so mirrorless camera is a lot smaller than a DSLR. A DSLR is a camera which has actually a mirror inside of it, mirror moving element. A mirrorless camera doesn't have a moving mirror. So the light coming in through the lens hits the sensor of the camera directly. And if you're looking either through the back of the screen or through the eye hole in a mirrorless camera, it's basically an LCD screen in there. So it's taking what's coming in to through the lens to the sensor and it's making a digital image of that so you can see rather than having a mirror there bouncing the light up and bouncing the light out into your eyeball. If that makes sense, if that doesn't make sense, let me know if you have any questions, any more tech questions on Twitter at Fox Nomad. Um, so yeah, so that's the camera that I use. It's been very, very, very reliable over the last three years. Um, I've had really no damage. I probably at this point, I've been looking at, I've been looking at something. I've been trying to make the jump into a full frame camera, but I haven't seen. Basically, the camera that I have now is not a full frame camera, which means that when I'm recording, when I'm recording video, it's not making use of the entire sensor. It's sort of using just a little cropped-in part of the sensor. It's not using the full sensor. So I, they do make cameras that are full-frame cameras. But for me to make that jump right now, I don't think I'm going to get the same balance of durability, quality, and price. Having to, to jump up into that, I'm going to have a much more a heavier and more expensive setup, which I don't think will translate over into actual video quality that you can see so drastically that it'll make me change out all the gear that I have. And changing from Panasonic to Canon and Sony, which I've been looking at, um, would be a pretty big jump because I'd have to change all my lenses. I'd have to learn a whole new 
camera system and I'm, I'm still just learning all this stuff about the G85 just you know like it's got a million settings and and in different lighting conditions especially when traveling you've got to l really learn the settings of the camera because you've got to make sure that the exposure is right that your face has the right colors and all that stuff so for me to make that jump I'm not quite there yet I probably will get a wider angle lens for the G85, the 8-18, I think, the 8-18, which is an f1.8. Maybe that's just in my dreams. Maybe it's the f2.5, which will give me that more shallow depth of field. So there you have it. If you've been wondering about the camera that I'm using, and a lot of you seem to be asking me about the, the camera that I use, there you have it, Panasonic Lumix G85. 12 to 60 millimeter lens f 3.5 a um, couple of the cameras i use i use an iphone 11 as my backup camera i the, the video on the new iphones is pretty good the only thing i don't like about it is it turns everybody's face super red so it really sat over over saturates the reds so everybody looks like they've either got sunburn or jaundice it's just um it's the one thing but the quality is really good and i i just love the wide angle lens like google get on that wide angle lens with the new pixel but uh yeah so the wide angle lens comes in a lot handier i very rarely use a telephoto lens on the phone i in fact have never used it on this phone when shooting with my camera i very rarely use it and in terms of other cameras i do have a gopro hero 7 black which i use from time to time i just shot in nepal and in india i shot two videos that were hidden camera videos so i used gopro for that um one was kind of a fun hidden camera video, and the second one almost turned violent. So something to look forward to. I'll just give a little tease about that. So those are basically all the cameras that I carry. I don't carry any other cameras. So I've got three. Yeah, three. So we've got the G85 GoPro phone that covers me for most situations. Let me know if you have any questions about any camera gear or any other tech gear on Twitter at FoxNomad. And send me out the kind of camera gear that you're using. I always like to see people set up. I'm always really curious about it. So let me know on Twitter and we'll get into the next topic. Istanbul's bloody head cult. So for a very long time, now, now I'm in Istanbul. So for a very long time, I'd say for the last, I don't know, 10 years or something actually maybe not back as far as 10 years but as walking around Istanbul especially in certain parts of the city so down by Taksim Square down by Sultan Ahmed which is sort of the old historic part of the city uh, Taksim is sort of this I guess the center of the city you could say I mean it's such a massive city that it's hard to call it a center but when I'm walking around there one thing that I noticed is I would see these guys right they're completely bald and they'd have a black headband, like a you know, like like LeBron James wears, like a headband keeps sweat from getting in your face. They'd have these headbands, and then they behind the headband would be like this white, white like patch, and the patch would be bloody. And I, for the longest time, thought this was some sort of religious cult or some sort of I don't know what I what I thought it was, but I definitely did not realize what it actually is. But yeah, you see these guys. I actually met a friend uh, last week and we went, uh, who's visiting from out of town. So I, I kind of gave him a, like a little historic tour. So we went to the historic area, we went to get some food, went to one of my favorite places. And as we sat down, I saw a guy sitting down who looked like he was in just extraordinary pain. And there was just like blood dripping off his head. He's completely bald. And he looked... I don't, I don't know. I mean, he looked Eastern European, Russian is my guess. Um, and his girlfriend or wife was just like holding his hand really tightly. And she looked super, super concerned. Now, now that I know what this is, uh, I find it, you know, it's not as odd to me. But I, I really, for the longest time, thought it was a cult. So for those of you who are now screaming at your your headphones or your car, wherever you're listening... These are people who are getting hair transplants. Hair transplants are super popular in Istanbul in particular. People fly all over the world to get hair transplants here. Yeah, so a lot of these guys come here to get hair transplants. And what that does is 
they basically like take hair from the side of your head. So if you're a balding man, they take the, that and then they basically remove the follicles in groups and then implant them on the top of your head. Now, I don't know if you watch any kind of sports or MMA or anything, or if you've ever cut anywhere on your head, there's a lot of blood vessels in your scalp. So there's a, like, if you cut your head, there's a lot of blood, lots of, I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, it's a bloody part of the body. And uh, so when they do these kind of transplants, it obviously causes a lot of blood and a lot of bleeding all over your head. So there's all these like dots that are like just basically like blood is coming out of them. And so you and you can't cover that up. I mean, you don't want to cover that up. So after you get a hair transplant, basically these guys have to walk around with their head out. So they've got these headbands on with these um, patches to cover up the bloody parts where they've removed the healthy hair follicles from the back and the side. And then they implant that on the top. And uh, man, that that looks painful, like super painful. Um, it It's to... F- to fly from another country to come here and to go through that seems like a lot of effort, a lot of effort for what is a lot of, looks like a very painful procedure. And on top of that, that procedure is not permanent. So those, those hair transplants don't, don't last. Uh, it's, it's a procedure that you have to keep getting done anywhere from, you know, at least about a year on. So you have to keep doing that because, you know, the those hair follicles that they're implanting on the top of your head don't stay there. They eventually die out. You, you go bald again. You have to keep doing it. And that they, the hair that you... I know this is a really weird rant, but maybe I'm trying to empower people, but, like, the the hair that you have on the top of your head, too, doesn't look real. Like, like it doesn't look uniform. It does look like these little, like, little sprouts coming out. From a distance, like, yeah, it looks like you got hair. But it looks like you've got hair that you're losing. Like, it doesn't look natural. Like, I think if you just shaved it, you would look, it would just look better. And you wouldn't have to go through this bloody pain. It just looks really painful. And I, I see a lot of guys and a lot of women wearing basically like a Band-Aid around their nose, just covering up the front of their their nose and i was thinking oh man maybe these guys are you know maybe they're amateur boxers or something but nope they are getting nose jobs he knows jobs and uh there's a lot of botox going around there's actually two or three plastic surgeons that are right around uh where i'm staying and a lot i just see people that are coming out like fresh from botox and and nose surgery and uh, and probably other surgeries because they're pretty swollen and, and beat up all this to say is, I don't know if it's worth the effort. I think you get, you should basically, might want to just rock how you look. Just embrace that. Um, I don't know if, if the, the bloody hair transplant is, it looks pretty painful. But if you're going to come somewhere, I mean, you're, you've got a lot of people, you're not going to look out of place here. People are going to know why you have the black headband and the bloody patch on. Um, so there's plenty of people that are doing it, but... I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it. Come here and come to Istanbul for the food. Like, there's a lot of great places to eat. There's a lot of his history here. There's a lot of you know. There's a lot of places to go out. A lot of fun. A lot of great things to do here. I'd say probably skip the hair transplant. I don't know. Maybe I'm just rant, like ranting at this point. Um, so anyway, so I thought that was a cult. It is not. It is people getting hair transplants and and nose jobs and you know it's plastic surgery tourism which you know i can't imagine uh doing it like just out of pure laziness like you know i mean there's you know tons of things i could probably fix on myself but uh, you know the thought of traveling somewhere to get a surgery done in a foreign country um and then walk around in that kind of pain just it seems it seems like a lot of effort to me um and most of these, most of these people I'm seeing around, I'm like, man, you you look good with a shaved head. Like you look pretty awesome. Like just just go with that. Anyway, that's my rant on hair transplants. I don't know. Also, 
the bloody head thing, like when I go into a restaurant and I see a guy's head just bleeding all over the place, you know, I just, I don't, it doesn't like, I mean, it was too much. So maybe just stay in your hotel or something. I don't know. I mean, don't bleed all over the place. Like it kind of killed my appetite, killed my appetite, buddy. All right. So there you go. I don't, I don't even know what to think about that segment, but it happened. And now we're going to go on to the next thing where I'm just making generalizations about things that I probably shouldn't. All right, so if you haven't seen yesterday, I dropped a video on the Monal, which is a really famous restaurant in Islamabad, Pakistan. It is, everybody knows about this restaurant. Everybody, most people will tell you to go there. And the restaurant sits in the mountains. It's about 10 kilometers outside the city on this like crazy steep road to go up into the mountains. And you can see the entire Islamabad. The views are just amazing and beautiful. So um, when I went there, I did hire a driver. So I hired a driver, went basically off the street. It was pretty, pretty dumb. It could have like, it was pretty like not the best way to do it. So I hired a guy and, um, I was like, all right, I'm going to go up there, but I need you to, I need a way down. So I tried Kareem, which is a local ride sharing app. I tried Uber, but they all cancel your order because they know they're not going to have anybody to drive back down and they're not going to wait for you. So that crazy drive up is a, you know, they don't get paid enough to just make it a one way trip. So for them, they'll just stay in town. They'll just cancel your order. So the only way, really the safest way to do it to make sure that you have a ride back down is to hire a driver. Most hotels can arrange that for you and it's not going to be too crazy expensive. It's going to be about $15 US. So you just hire a driver, you go all the way up and then they wait for you, which you know is slightly weird, but they wait for you um, and then you eat your meal, you take pictures, whatever. Your driver's waiting there and they drive you back down. For them, it makes a lot of sense because it's a lot more than they would get just taxing around the city so um as you go up to the monal like i said i was in this uh tiny little car we were just going up at night it was about 10 p.m took me about an hour to find uh, a ride up there and somebody who would give me a reasonable price for the entire trip so you go up this crazy mountain road i mean there's you got to really know those roads there's cars all over the road coming up and coming down it's it's uh there were a couple of times that it was like pretty tight turns with a lot of cars and trucks on the road so you get up there to the monal and the restaurant is super impressive and you can tell it's definitely a place that a lot of wealthy locals go to for birthday parties um you know anniversaries they're just these big they were, it was really full of these big dinner parties um one was a birthday i think it was a kid's birthday i'm pretty sure but like you know, groups of about forty people or so. Um, so it's really impressive. You see this restaurant. There's a lot of people that are just showing up at ten o'clock, really nicely dressed. And then there's me and you know, with my camera and microphone, wearing you know, just like a t-shirt and jeans, right? <laughs> just showing up. Um, so you get there, and a lot of people have been commenting on the video. Some people agree with me, and some people disagree with me. Which you know, that's how things work. So we get there and take a bunch of pictures of the city. It was freezing. I mean, it had to be below freezing. It was really cold. Um, but the views were excellent, and I got some great pictures. Um, then I sat down to look at the menu, and they've got that, you know, there's whenever you see a mix of, like, you know, the local food, that's always great. But then you see a mix of, like, continental food, and that continental or, like, the Western food section is really big. I always question like how good the food is. So that's one thing that always puts me off a little bit because I'm like thinking, okay, they've got this wide variety of a whole bunch of different types of food. So my guess is they're not specializing in any one thing, which usually doesn't mean good food. And then the second thing, which this did hold true for the Monal, not everybody agreed with me, is that the better a restaurant's views are, are inversely proportional to how good the food is. So just think back to restaurants you've been to, beautiful views, you know, overlooking the mountains or at the beach, beachfront restaurants. Just think about that. And have you noticed that the food 
at those places is never great. It's always good-ish, average, maybe, usually overpriced. The Monal was not over, was not too terribly overpriced, but it's usually overpriced. The food is not great, but you've got the view. So that's really what you're paying for. They know that the view brings people in. So having that view means they're going to have business. They don't need great food. If you go to a hole in the wall that's like eight blocks up, that's in the middle of nowhere, those kind of places generally need to have great food. And they've got to entice locals. Locals are going to have a different food judgment. They're going to have a different food monitor or a different food kind of criteria of the local cuisine. So those local places that are just like hole in the wall or smaller places or not with a great view have to have much better food to maintain their business. Whereas the places that do have a good you know, view don't really have to worry about that. So the food is not that great. And that was the case at the Monal. It wasn't terrible food. It wasn't great food. It was just okay. I mean, you know, and a lot of people disagree with me on that uh, in the comments of the YouTube video. Um, and take what you will of YouTube comments or whatever. But, you know, I eating around Pakistan, the food there in general is very rich, very flavorful, a lot of spices. Like there's nothing there that's I would call bland. The food is really very good. And it's very flavorful. The Monal, yeah. Ah. Yeah, so that would be my review. It would be like, meh. Food was decent, um, but it was just kind of like, you know, stuff that you would get just at any old restaurant, like anywhere in the world. You know, the Pakistani dish is the same. It's just not very flavorful, not too spicy, not too, you know, just sort of right down the middle compared to all the other food that I had had in Pakistan up until that point. But you're paying for this amazing view and it's the only restaurant up there. They don't have any competition. So there are, okay, there are other restaurants on the other sort of on the other ledges, but you don't see the city. So they don't have the city view. So there's only restaurant there. You're pretty much stuck there. And so they don't have to make the food great. And I'm not saying it's intentional. I'm just saying that, you know, that's that's basically how things work. Like they don't need the best chef to keep the business going there. I mean, they had like hundreds of people there when I was there, like dinner parties and stuff. They're there for the view also there for the ambiance it's a very sort of posh restaurant you get you can see the whole city as you go up the mountain there are all these stop off points but it makes me wonder maybe you can just tweet at me uh at fox nomad just tweet at me if there is a restaurant that has a great view and also really really good food like especially good food if there's a place in the world like that i want to know cuz i I'll probably try to go there and verify verify that um, a couple of other people pointed out uh, some places that they thought had great food and great views. I think those replies were a little bit biased, but the places that they pointed out, uh, a couple were in Pakistan in the comments of that video. I got, I got to say the food was okay. It was good. It wasn't great. It, you know, the, the places that were pointed out. So that's something to know. Better the views, the less good the food is going to be the better the food typically the views are not going to be as good um if i go back into sort of my memory of places my favorite places to eat like there was this uh, can you there's sorry about that there's like a seagull war happening outside um but if i go back into my memory of the best places that i've eaten like if i go into Kathmandu, there was a tibetan and nepali restaurant that i went to almost every day to get momos, to get Tibetan uh, tentuk and tupka. And it was, it didn't have a great view. It was kind of on a side street. Restaurant was very basic, but the food was excellent. And then you go down the street and there are these more like hipster posh places that are catering really to tourists and food was good. I'm not going to say it's bad food. I'm not going to say it's just average. Like it's good, you know, it's yeah, it's good <laughs> But it's not something that you're going to remember after. But I do remember that that uh, Tibetan Nepali cafe. So if you're in Kathmandu, go there. It's awesome. Very good food. Let me know if there are places that I'm missing. Let me know if you disagree with this basic travel math. Let me know and tell me why too. 
All right. So last thing, I want to get into travel regrets. Not my own travel regrets, but I have these. I came across these two stories on Twitter, and uh, one it was it was kind of interesting in this in the way that they both came to me. So the first one, they're both about travel regrets, and I came across them at different times. So there's different. One is a Business Insider article about a traveler, and the other one is a blog post. And they both came kind of at this, you know, within a week of each other. So I figured it was a good idea to sort of contrast these two. So I'm going to pull these up. So the first one is this Business Insider article. It says, the headline is, this woman traveled alone and said it was one of the worst decisions of her life. Okay, that kind of article, I see that on Twitter. I'm going to click on that. That's interesting to me, Um, you know, obviously as a traveler. And so I was like, all right. I'm imagining certain scenarios. I'm imagining how long she's been traveling. So let's get down into this. So Jamie Bradley, a 25-year-old advertising manager, quit her job to travel the world for a year. All right. After and this is these are the bullet points at the top of the article, and it says after just six weeks she returned home, having realized how lonely it gets while traveling without a companion. And then it said she also learned how hard it is to connect with others while traveling and the annoyance of having to constantly plan your day. Now, right off the bat, when I read that six weeks, I was like, really? You were going to travel for a year and you didn't even make it 10% in and you and you quit because it was it was too hard. All right. Now, I'm going to keep getting into this article and get more into it. But I don't even know if, if she was over her jet lag, really. Um, so she said that she ran into this constant loneliness that can re- ruin an entire trip. Again, we're talking about six weeks, and it's even less than that. We'll get into that. Um, so she's an advertising manager in New York, confronted with the reality that she quit her job and wanted to travel for a year in 2017. In six weeks, she but after six weeks, she just returned home. She said... All right, so she left her job because she felt unfulfilled and wanted to consider other options. While looking for uh, a job, she said, all right, let me take this year off. It's not her first time traveling alone. She did it briefly after college and fell in love in South, fell in love with Southeast Asia. However, this time she wanted to travel much longer, at least a year, and decided to start in Africa on a wildlife reservation. Now, let me just start with that basic thing so it says that her flight to africa was 20 hours so that's a whole day right and then imagine a whole day at the airport getting there back it's a three days that's gone out of six weeks that's just travel time to africa you're gonna be you know that's a long trip you're gonna be jet lagged for at least a week so out of that six weeks you know one week you're jet lagged like that's a short amount of time is, this is the rant podcast. Here we go. And says so she was euphoric the entire time, felt brave, strong, indestructible. But then she felt her attitude shift during her 20-hour flight to Africa. All right. So she's on the flight and she's already having this attitude shift. I am not saying that you can't change your mind. I'm not saying that traveling is for everybody. I'm not saying any of that. But what I think what should be made clear is that this article is not a really good representation of travel for most people. It's it's not a long enough period of time to judge anything. I mean, it's like saying I went to the I started going to the gym and after 6 weeks I quit because I was sore and everything hurt. And it's like yeah, I mean that's you know, if you give it 6 months, I want to basically like in anything. I want to hear from somebody who's got a lot more experience that can tell me about the whole process over, you know, six months, a year, longer, um, which fortunately I do have another story about that. But um, so she landed in Cape Town. She went to this uh, wildlife reservation. I'm going to guess the wildlife reservation has people on it. So, um, you know, okay, maybe she didn't get along with everybody, but there are people there, you know, and you don't have to, you don't have to be best buds with everybody, but I'm sure you can find somebody to talk to um and so she had culture she had culture shock lack of adjustment 
Um, she m journaled a lot to make sense of her feelings and even turned to books to satisfy my mind and fill the time. At one point, she even flew from Africa to Europe in a last-minute decision to meet up with friends and avoid the loneliness. That did help, but the feelings crept back when she, when her friends left and she arrived in Budapest alone. So now we've got 20-hour flight to Africa, and then we've got probably like a, what, 15-hour flight, assuming, you know, normal connections to Europe. So now we've got, basically, we've got five days of travel time. So now this six weeks is five weeks, and most of that is her running around and and not actually, like, being in the place. Like, you're 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 moving around, you know, like, that. it's almost like that frantic kind of, situation that when you get anxious you try to do a lot of different things you realize you're not really doing anything that if you just kind of stay in one place and you hit that grind like you just get into that routine of whatever it is whether it's working out whether it's learning a musical instrument whether it's you know learning how to use the panasonic lumix g85 there's a sort of this daily grind that you that really helps relieve a lot of that anxiety it's like when everything is really different at least for me, when everything is like really crazy and with me, it, it, it often is. Like I'm often traveling. So I'm often in different environments, different cultures and all that. But all that craziness seems really put into perspective when you get into a natural routine. Some kind of routine that you can rely on. Like you go, all right, I know this is, I'm going to have breakfast. I'm going to maybe do this thing. I'm going to go for a run. You know, check out this museum. Boom. That's it. Simple stuff. Like, let's just do simple stuff. Even on the first day, you might just do something like, I'm just going to walk over to that cafe and sit there for a couple hours, maybe do some work, maybe read, you know, maybe call my friends. I don't know, whatever. Simple things. Like, once you break up a big problem, like I've said on my blog, I think that's one of the first blog posts that I wrote, is if you take a big problem and you break it up into small components that you can tackle one by one, anything becomes much, much easier. And uh, so, um, so going on to her to her story, she said she was extremely lonely. I felt a wave of depression. Um, spent four days in her Airbnb just knitting. She found it exhausting, having to figure out something to do every second and plan a new place to see and figure out where it is, how to get there, look at it, and not having anybody to share the experience with. Again, I'm not judging her. I'm not, you know, everybody's different. But <clears throat> my response to this would be, first of all, if you're just kind of holding up inside your apartment, um, it's going to be difficult to to meet people, first of all. But also, I think that there is this notion a lot of people have when they travel, and I see this with tour groups too. So I've worked with a couple of different tour groups, and I, I see what what people often have in mind when they first arrive. And that's, I'm going to do this, 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 next day, this, 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 this. And then as you see the time go on, they start doing less and less and they ha enjoy more of the downtime. Like there's more downtime in in their day and it sort of just becomes a natural component. And that's because, you know, like you can't fill up every second. I mean, imagine when you're home, when you're, when you're home, imagine like the tourists that come to wherever you are listening to this podcast from. Right, they're running around doing a million things, probably going to places and museums and restaurants that you've never gone to. As a local, you know, you've got your daily routine, you know, you, you and every place has a different sort of schedule. Like a lot of countries their day starts later, their nights start late, you know, end later. They got a kind of a different routine and I think as opposed to trying to hit like a million different places every day, I think you, you can really just like if you like to eat find a restaurant you like go there maybe there's some kind of cultural event go there you know there's all kinds of different ways that you can sort of break up <clears throat> you can sort of break up a day and enjoy kind of what you're seeing that's that's just how i see it so you don't have to fill it up with like go to this museum go to that one thing a day is fine go to you know go to a museum get some food that's it you know you don't need to run around and see everything i mean most of that stuff if you see 10 things in a day, I mean, I can almost guarantee you the very few places I've been or I've had days like that, especially when I first started traveling and so much of that stuff is not memorable. 
the most memorable stuff is the things that really go wrong, the people that you meet, the sort of, you know, silly days that you have. Those things I find much more, um, much more memorable. So she went back to New York. She said she felt like herself again. And, you know, she said it gave me the strength to leave my job and jolted me into a new stage of my life where I'm unafraid of excessive responsibility and long-term commitment, blah, blah, blah. All right, yeah, I'm blah, blah, blahing this one. And, all right, I mean, Business Insider really like six weeks. It's really like five weeks. I mean, this was the best article you could come up with. I'd rather see an article from someone who traveled for like 10 years and was like, that was the worst decision that I ever made. And now I'm 60 years old and boom, that happened. Or I traveled for 20 years and, you know, this is like I tried something and I didn't like it. I mean, this could be an article about anything. This could be like eating broccoli. Like, you know, I I, I was decided I was going to eat more broccoli in my diet. And after five weeks, I was like, man, this broccoli, I do not like it. I'm not eating broccoli anymore. But if I go over to this, um, so this is a blog called Lost with a Purpose. Um, I don't don't know the writer, don't know this blog, but I came across it again on Twitter, and it said four years of full time travel for important lessons. Now you've got my attention. Now you got four years, good amount of time for anything. I want to hear what you have to say. So uh, the writer, her name is. I don't see her name. Maybe she will. Maybe it'll be in here somewhere. Anyway, it says that she started, she took two backpacks and traveled from the Netherlands in 2016. And then she was like, I'm going to, loose plan was to travel with my then boyfriend until we ran out of money, find jobs in the warm, probably Southeast Asian climates. But my plans never happened as planned. Okay. Uh, she traveled for more than a year on her savings, broke up with the boyfriend Figured out how to make money traveling through blogging, freelancing, and selling oh, foot photos on the internet. But then it says, just kidding, unless you legitimately want to buy photos of my feet, which in case, let's talk. I don't know. That, all right. that This blog post took a weird turn. All right. So anyway, so let's get to these four lessons. So four lessons I learned from traveling. You can't see everything. Give no Fs. Um, yeah, that's true. I calculated this once on my site. I calculated whether or not you could actually see the entire world. All right, so I wanted to, I, I narrowed it down to cities with a population of 500,000 or more. That leaves us with 1,000 cities in the world that have a population of 500,000 or more. Keep in mind, this was written 10 years ago. Um, so for the purposes of this mind experiment, that's 15,000 places to see. How long are we staying in each place? I said a week. Let's say give it a week. It's a it's a good amount of time to see something. It's not too short. It's not too long. Um, plus, we've got the human lifespan to deal with. So let's try to see the whole world. Go to all the places that have more than 500,000 people. That's 1,500 places. Let's try to go and stay for a week. And I added in a day of travel between each city. So that's eight days of traveling. So seven days to see the place and one day of traveling, which is generous because obviously... Some, not everything is going to be a day away. It's going, some are going to be shorter, some are going to be a lot longer, depending on where it is in the world. So in order to see uh, 1,500 places, it would take you about 32.9 years to see every city in the world with more than 500,000 people. So if you started at age 20 and you start and you went to age 80, you could see a lot of that with the world spare. Now, if you include all the towns in the world with a population of 100,000, that's now 3,200 destinations. So just imagine a place that you've been that has 100,000 people, which is a lot of people, like not an insignificant number of people. Using all that same criteria, which I just mentioned, it would take you 70.3 years to see it. You could possibly do it, but... I mean, 70 years is a long time. You basically just travel the whole time from when you're... You'd have no life. I mean, it's not really feasible. So that's if you wanted to see all the cities in the world that had more than 100,000 people. That's not even counting, like, nature preserves, I don't know, you know, natural parks, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, you know, 
that's not even including all that stuff. And that's assuming you have an indefinite budget, no health issues, and all kinds of stuff. So nothing that's going to stop you. You basically have to be a robot. There's no way to see it all. This article sums it up. I just give you the gave you the kind of math rundown of it. So going back, going to lesson number two. Let's see. You're privileged AF. It's only bad if you ignore it. All right, she says, long-term travel is not accessible for anyone and everyone. This club is for privileged people only. You can try arguing, but you're going to lose. If you travel internationally at all, you need a passport, which most people do not have. Maybe they can't read, afford one, or never needed one, or are forbidden from getting one, or don't have access to the systems to apply for one. Uh, only 42% of people in my country, the USA, have passports. All right, so two things about that. That is that is true. Like traveling for recreational purposes is a privilege. Some people travel, obviously, they've got to like move from one place to another and it's not recreational. They don't have passports, but they have to do it for basically to survive. That, that you know, that's a thing. But I said, well, for recreational travel, yeah, it's for sure, it's, it's a luxury. Like anytime you can leave, like have a recreational time, it's a luxury. There are a lot of people that couldn't take a week off of work. There are a lot of people that are working in conditions where they, they wouldn't have the money, they wouldn't have the opportunity, um, or they can't leave their family. There's all kinds of reasons why people can't travel. Yeah, it's a privilege for sure. So, But I will, I will note that this 42% of the people in the USA don't have passports. I also wrote an article, a uh, blog post about this years ago, and maybe this is for another podcast episode, but... Uh, it's not too unusual, even when you consider countries like Australia and Canada, the, the percentage, the proportion of people that have passports based on the size of the country is about the same. So uh, maybe we got to get into that next another podcast. Lesson number three, it's okay to take breaks. Um, let's see. There's da-da-da-da-da-da-da. All right, so she's basically saying with this take breaks, she's basically saying like, you don't have to travel like every single second of every single day, which is what I was saying before with the Business Insider article. Like you can take breaks. Like nobody's judging you. Like it's it's your own ego that's judging you if you feel you have to travel a certain amount, you have to prove something. Like you can just you know just take a break. Like just chill at a cafe. Like do whatever you like. Like if you you know if you want to go see the next Avengers movie, like that's that's okay. Like even going to, you can just be like a normal person in a different place. Not everything has to be some sort of exotic cultural experience. And as the world becomes more and more modern and more and more homogenized because of the internet and travel and all that stuff, like you can't always get like this amazing mind blowing experience. But even going to a movie theater in a foreign country is a cultural experience. It is slightly different. There are, there may be things that you see not at the movie theater, not in the movie, but there are things you may see from the audience. There are things you may notice from people who are in line. There's all kinds of things around you that's a different experience. You know, even the kind of fast food that you get at the theater is maybe different, you know? So it's it's basically, it's sort of, you know, you just have to look around you and you can find stuff. You don't have to, you know, and if you're like a blogger or somebody was blogging like you can just write about that experience you don't have to go find something that's so different you don't have to stress yourself out about that just write about going to the movies like, that's interesting um lesson number four the final lesson from her blog it says long-term travel is lonely uh forget the parasites ravaging my bowels nearly dying of altitude sickness and being harassed and assaulted on the regular the hardest part of long-term travel is loneliness. I'm not talking loneliness in the night when you're in a dingy room on your own in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. This loneliness is much bigger. It says the experiences you have while traveling are extraordinary. Your perspective changes. Your understanding of the world changes. You change. Everyone else at home, not so much. These changes can isolate you, though friends and family might have a shallow interest in your adventures. They probably can't relate. Most of my friends and family don't want to hear about anything more gripping than near-death tale or two. 
When I return home or settle somewhere where travelers are far and few between, it's like a vast treasure chest of experiences simply evaporates into the air. No one actually cares about what you've seen and how it's changed you. You are alone in your experiences. Um, so I got to, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of have to, I agree that loneliness is an issue when you're traveling, but I think it's an issue anywhere. Like go to like New York City, you tell me people are not feeling lonely there. Like it's definitely, I think also like a part of modern society. Um, so I don't think it's just when you're traveling. I, I, I you know, it, it can be, but I think that's the human experience really in the modern world. I think a lot of that, what we confuse, in, you know, and in travelers, we, we tend to be a little bit egocentric. We tend to think, I'm doing this great thing, or I'm only experiencing this thing. But you talk to a lot of people in big cities just around the world, and, you know, a lot of people are lonely. Um, and so I, I think that's something that people tackle with in modern society, especially as cities get bigger especially as we have more social media and the internet, like all that stuff. Um, and I don't agree that, yes, I agree that traveling changes you, but I disagree that everybody back, quote, home hasn't changed. Like, of course they've changed. Like, like most people have changed, right? Like 10 years goes by, 20 years goes by, like people change. Like it's not that they're not changing. They're just changing in different ways and it may be more subtle to you because a lot of the changes that have affected you as a traveler might be like something extraordinary that you've seen, some extraordinary experience. But um, let's say you're a traveler and you don't have kids um, and you meet one of your friends that has children. Like that that's a pretty big change. Like I, I'm going to bet that they've changed um, in a way that you can't understand. And so for me... Like, again, just, you know, not nitpicking, but just giving my opinions on this article is like, you know, I, I'm i really fascinated with how other people's lives are, especially the people that I'm close to, right? Like, I want to know what's going on in their life. And, and that's interesting to me. Like, my experience is different, but doesn't make it more interesting to me. And in fact, I've been traveling so long now that, that it, you know, like hearing these amazing, crazy travel stories don't don't maybe impact me in a way that they would have 10 years ago. But what really, I guess, catches my attention is how people's like people who haven't done that, like how their lives are going and what they're doing and, and connect with people on this sort of more base level that I think we all have this sort of human level of the experience of being on this rock in the middle of nothingness in, in a galaxy filled with billions of stars. Like, that's, I think, where we can bond. I think that's what traveling has sort of taught me is that, you know, that we are all very similar in a lot of ways. And that means that we all change with time. Like we all grow and learn from our experiences. Our experiences may be different, but not everybody can travel and not everybody should travel. Like if the world was a whole bunch of like people blogging about travel, then I mean, like, first of all, like nothing would get done and who would be reading it because we'd all be having the same life. Um, and I like to think that my friends and family do find my stories interesting. I don't know. I mean, if you're still listening at this point, you've been listening an hour into this podcast, like probably think some of the stuff I'm talking about is interesting. So anyway, um, so again, the loneliness, yeah, when you get to a new place, it can be really difficult to meet people, but then you've got all these travel experiences which can be interesting right like that that's just like inherently an interesting it's a good conversation starter um internet makes it really easy to isolate yourself but it also makes it really easy to connect with people in most cities you're going to find like meetup groups facebook groups all kinds of stuff like you know to connect with people and if you've got a blog as as uh she does and i should probably find out what her name is if you've got a blog like she does, it's even easier to meet people because you've got this reader base that's sort of built in. Hi, I'm Alex. Okay, her name is Alex. So, so yeah. Those are some of the things that I would add. Those are just some of my thoughts. So, if, if you read, when you read these, like, clickbaity headlines, which is like, I've traveled the world for, like, two days and, like, I hated it. Like, you know, let's put it in some perspective. Um, yeah. So there we go. So this this has been, I don't know, this podcast took a 
kind of weird turn. It was like I have all my plans like laid out, so I had them all like noted up. Um, and uh, but maybe next time let's do a little bit of Q and A at the end. But there's a quote that this is why I like having the podcast. Is I really I just found this quote on Reddit and I had to look up who said it, and I really felt that it was just really relevant and interesting, and the podcasting like a good place to put it. So I'll leave you with this. Um, to worry is to pay a debt of misery that may nev- never come true. That was said by Will Rogers, the person who said it, at least that I could cite it to earliest. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you very much for listening and supporting this podcast. It the um, It's just, and sharing it, it, the growth has just been just phenomenal. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, if you want to let me know, what you'd like to hear more of, less of, anything like that, please let me know at Twitter or email me or send smoke signals or whatever, and I will read your comments and uh, improve with every episode. So thank you very much. I hope you have a great next couple of days, and if you've got a trip planned up and you find a restaurant that has great, great views and great, great food, please let me know because I'd like to find those anomalies. Thanks again, and I will talk to you in the next episode.